So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to another episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. I'm Nate Larkin, here with my good friend David Hampton. Uh, we are recording this in February of 2022. Yesterday was 2222. I don't know what's I don't know what the significance was. Yeah. Uh, that, that was uh, kind of an interesting, eerie feeling there, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm still in Florida. Uh, Allie, my wife, still recovering from surgery. My son came over and cared for her yesterday so that my brother and I could just hang out as brothers and uh, play around for the day. We drove down to St. Augustine. The oldest, oh, that's nice over there. Yeah. Yeah. Continuously occupied city in the U.S. And toured the old fort, rode the trolleys. and Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that was wonderful. I just got to be, you know, Got to feel 15 again for a while. We just knocked around town and acted yeah. like idiots. But, uh, <laughs> well, that's good. That's fun. Everybody yeah, needs to do yeah. that every now and then. Yeah. 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 And, and enjoyed the sunshine, which uh, I understand you, you are not able to enjoy today. It's beautiful. Mm. I, I, mean, I don't want to torture you, David, but it's <laughs> yeah, absolutely Yeah, here we go again. Oh, yeah, yeah, God. Yeah. yeah. Well, they're predicting right now we've had rain yesterday and, and rain today, lots of rain, but they're predicting yeah. ice tonight uh sleep oh, and ice accumulations oh, here so yeah. um yet again uh yeah you know, the beauty of uh nashville in the winter but you know mm. we'll 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 have our spring soon enough hopefully yeah so yeah you know i got a nice i got a nice boost last weekend uh i always get a boost when i get to go out and actually interact with people talk with people so last last weekend, uh, I did an event at a church uh, in Jupiter, Florida, the sanctuary. I hastily organized a fair. There were a few guys there and had, had a small uh, sex addiction recovery group. And they invited me down and uh, they were hoping for 50 guys and that uh, we had 150 guys. Wow. Yeah. That's including, great. Including, yeah, including uh, a van load of guys who drove up from Fort Lauderdale, uh, 30 guys from a treatment center. Okay. And then, yeah. So we had guys in treatment, uh, most of them for drugs and alcohol. And of course, we talked broadly about addiction. And in, in, you know, in conversation with other guys after the program, uh, I got the sense, you know, everybody had an addiction story. Mm -hmm. Nobody was there, you know, purely out of idle curiosity. Right. Uh, uh, some people were on the very front end of exploring the possibility that perhaps their recovery was available, uh, that there was, you know, and they were coming and they'd never experienced any hope or change and they were hoping for it. Others, uh, you know, had been around 12-step recovery or some other form of recovery for a while. Uh -huh. it's, it's interesting. I uh, went to dinner afterwards with uh, a, a few of the guys who had been part of the leadership. One of the guys is a professional musician mm, uh -huh. who, you know, very conspicuously was not drinking, very, uh, just a wonderful, engaging guy. Got talking to him and he'd been... I forget exactly how many times he told me he, he, he rattled off. Oh, I told him where I was from. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've been to a, one of my treatment centers was near there. He, he, I think he said he'd been to treatment 11 times. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Right. 
Yeah. Now I've been so been sober now for a few years and seems to have some good traction. Yeah. Has actually worked in treatment centers. Yeah. Uh, but but well aware that you know the treatment modality that works the first time for one guy. Yeah. Will not necessarily work the first time for everybody. Right. Yeah. Not everybody, and it's not, and it's not always. I don't know that it's always the fault of the person. Mm-hmm. And it's not always the fault of the treatment center, right? Uh, right. It's uh, you know, you know what mixes, what matches. Yeah. Uh, well, the average uh, amount of times people, you know, they say with like alcohol use disorder, uh, only ten yeah. percent of the people who need uh, to seek help actually do. But out of those ten right. percent, um, the average amount of if if you go to residential inpatient treatment once, you will yeah. likely go five times. Wow. Yeah. Before you really experience ongoing long-term sobriety. And that's not, uh, you know, that's not an encouraging thing in one hand, but it's not a, a, like you said, it's not a slap in the face to the treatment centers either. And it's not a slap in the face to the person suffering. It's just that, you know, this is tough and we have to come to a lot of conclusions over and over and over and over again before we sometimes yeah. grasp that, you know, of course, we know the longer people stay, uh, the better mm-hmm. they do over time. Right. But, um, you know, and one of the things today our guest uh, is going to be sharing with us is just that um, America and well, the world has a really interesting history of uh, addiction, uh, interesting yeah. ways of looking at addiction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and what a great guest uh, it, he is. Uh, listeners, you are in for a treat. Uh, you know, cl- close the door, shut off all other distractions. You're going to want to listen to to uh, to our guest when we return on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. You know, sometimes we go far afield to find a guest. You know, we might go all the way to California or someplace exotic. Uh, But today, uh, David, you have brought to us a guest who is uh, a little farther away from that. Would you do the introduction? Absolutely. Uh, Our guest today is Dr. Carl Eric Fisher. And uh, Dr. Fisher, uh, besides uh, working in the medical field and psychiatry, is an author. And he wrote a book that for me is a, sounds super interesting. It's called The Urge, Our History of Addiction. And uh, Dr. Fisher is coming to us from Lisbon, Portugal. <laughs> so uh, that I, I don't know if he gets the, the very farthest uh, award yet, but that's right up there. Uh, so, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, Dr. Fisher, welcome, first of all, to the podcast. And for thank you for joining us and uh, making time to do that. And uh, we are uh, super interested in the cultural kind of historical conversation about addiction that that we have, and and I know that we come to this uh, understanding about what we think addiction is as a society uh, from a lot of different places, and not all of them the most scientific. And so uh, that is something your book addresses. So I'm excited to have you here and talk about that. Well, thanks so much. It's really great to be here, and I appreciate the chance to chat. Yeah, absolutely. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, I wonder, you know, uh, what we always say week after week is we like our listeners to get to know our guests on a personal level. Uh, So I wonder if you wouldn't mind uh, giving us kind of a thumbnail, how'd you, you know, a a personal background, as much of your story as you would feel comfortable sharing. Uh, and, And especially I'm interested to know, how did your interest in addiction, uh, where did that arise? Well, sure. I The book covers my own personal history uh, in some oh, detail, nice. though it's not the main focus. So mm-hmm. I'm happy to go there. And yeah. I, my interest, taking the last part of your question first, my personal interest in addiction came out of my personal history of addiction. So there you go. I was in medical school and I thought outwardly doing very well. Mm-hmm. But I was really struggling with alcohol and Adderall use. And so when I graduated mm-hmm. med school at Columbia and then stayed on 
to do a psychiatry residency at Columbia, I could only hold it together for so much longer. Uh, this double life where I was supposedly yeah. high achieving on the outside, winning awards and publishing papers, but then going deeper and deeper into out of control alcohol and Adderall use to the point where I wound up at the Bellevue psychiatric ward. Wow. And it wasn't a gradual process. Yeah, I knew for uh, years and years and years that I had a problem and was in yeah. a way concealing that for myself. But it, it, my actual entry into recovery, if you want to term it that way, it was a pretty yeah, rapid yeah. process. I was in the, the psych ward and I, if I wanted to practice medicine and if I wanted to survive, basically I needed to make yeah. some big changes. So it was after that, that I, um, you know, looking back, I was averse to the academic or to the clinical study of addiction before that, mm -hmm. probably because it was mm -hmm. uncomfortable. Yeah, uh, right. But then it was after that point that it, it became also a professional and a scholarly interest too. Sure, sure, sure. Um, I'm wondering, was there, uh, when did scholarly interest and scholarly, you know, research, uh, clinical study of addiction, when did that begin to take shape? Uh, is this something that's been going on in the medical community for a long time, or is it fairly recent? What did you learn? That's such a great question because I think we have short memories in medicine and science. Mm -hmm. What most people miss is that there was actually a lot of scholarly interest in addiction, in drug problems, mm -hmm. in drug epidemics going back yeah. hundreds of years. Oh, wow. Sometimes, sometimes nowadays people talk about the time before, say, 1900s, 1910s, as if they were some dark ages. Right, like, right, right. Oh, like back back before the Civil War and whatnot, it, it was mm -hmm. all the moral model and nobody cared. And that's not true. It's not true that really? people just said addiction was a personal failing. Of course, there's always been stigma. There's always been right. tremendous oppression actually related yeah. to addiction. But you know, as early as the uh, English gin craze of mm -hmm. the earlier mm -hmm. part of yeah. the 18th century, there were uh, massive medical undertakings to understand addiction. And even before then, there were writers and thinkers and philosophers uh, right. and also theologians who were really interested in the yeah, phenomenon yeah. of addiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, culture, Western culture, well, Eastern, because I'm thinking of uh, the opium wars and the opium epi epidemics in China. So it's not just a Western problem, it's an Eastern problem. Uh, and in the West, there have been kind of these waves when new addictive substances, man, the the development of distillation changed everything around alcohol, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah. So, where does your interest run? Uh, as a, are you a historian as well as a, a you know medical man? Well, I'm a bioethicist by oh. training as oh, okay. an academic field, and what that means is I started off in neuroscience research, and I did. Mm -hmm some brain imaging research, and I did some brain stimulation research, which has to do with non-invasive magnetic stimulation of the brain, but right, also right, even right. brain surgery. And back then right. when I was studying it, it was uh, more about depression and OCD, less about addiction. Uh, right. But over time, I got more and more interested in exactly what you're talking about. I got more interested mm -hmm. in the social and cultural and legal and philosophical implications uh -huh. of mental health. These These eternal questions really like how do we make sense of our suffering where is mm -hmm. the line between normal and disordered how yeah, does culture yeah, and society yeah. affect the way we understand these these concepts uh and it was basically just applying that to addiction that led me back to the history yeah yeah wow 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 well how do you see dr fisher the um the current american or western uh mindset about addiction. I mean, we we think we understand it culturally, but yet it isn't uh it isn't treated equitably uh for everybody. No. The if we truly understood it or had anything resembling a handle on it, we wouldn't be living through a historic overdose crisis, right. not to mention the crisis of other addictions that we've mm -hmm. long been living through. So I think you're right to point out that there's something in the American psyche, in the American consciousness 
around addiction that's related to inequality and that's related to racism sometimes Mm -hmm. too Mm -hmm. in the way Mm -hmm. that we subdivide people by good drugs and bad drugs in a way that inevitably comes back to harm all of us. The interesting thing about the history is that people have long recognized this particularly American angle on addiction. We had an opioid epidemic after the Civil War. Uh, really? Yeah. It was oh, the, all that laudanum, right? Yeah. Well, it was it was more about morphine, actually. It was, was more it really? about purified okay. morphine. And okay. you know, morphine was purified anywhere that there was a developed nation. Uh, right. Uh-huh. So it, it's not totally clear why the U.S. had a bigger problem than, say, for example, other European countries. Now, we had the Civil War, but other European countries had gone through conflicts uh-huh. as well. You know, there's uh-huh. the Napoleonic yeah. Wars and other conflicts there. Um, uh, there was something about the American attitude toward individualism and yeah. self-reliance and the way that American culture can also be alienated sometime in the in the sort of search for opportunity. Sometimes people are uprooted from their traditional roots. These are all sure. just some of the many, many ideas people have kicked yeah. around throughout right. time. But it, it is certainly true that, that that's why most of my story, I start in ancient Greece and ancient India and trace really? the concept of addiction throughout history. But I do focus predominantly on the States, not only because it's my own effort to understand myself, but also because there's something uniquely American about yeah. some of the uh-huh. big addiction problems we've had. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Why do you think, Dr. Fisher, that Americans seem to be averse to things like um, harm reduction or some of the other uh, ways that uh, places, even like where you are, Portugal, have approached um, people with substance use d- disorders and alcohol use disorders and all of that? Yeah, addiction is such a polarized field, right? Uh-huh. And it mm-hmm. very easily drops into ideology and people sort of assort themselves into warring camps. And yeah. there's been really powerful resistance to what we would consider very basic harm reduction interventions. Uh, and that's a tangled thread I try to trace through the book. Some of that lies in some of the problems and the ideological rigidity of our current treatment system. Uh, But that's not because bad people came about and crafted a bad system that has its own roots that uh, the American medical profession, my profession in many ways abandoned the treatment of people with addiction a hundred years ago, leaving this huge vacuum. And then a lot of good things came out of that vacuum. Uh, 12-step fellowship came out of that vacuum. And Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in part, it was almost motivated by the need to fill that gap. Right, Uh, right, right. But also people had to sort of self-assemble and come up with their own treatment programs. And Mm -hmm. I think as a result, in some ways, uh, people get ideologically hardened. Uh, they, They can get attached to the notion that the the one way or maybe the way that worked for them is the best way. And right, right, right. I, that's driven a lot of harm resistance to some of the harm reduction interventions. And then, of course, the other one is outright racism and xenophobia and oppression, because sometimes yeah. harm reduction services are seen as aiding and abetting or condoning the kinds of use that we want to criticize and condemn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, David, you alluded to progressive uh uh, strategies and policies uh, around addiction in Portugal. I recall reading some stuff about that some time ago, but I'm not at all clear on the details. I wonder if uh, maybe Dr. Fisher, you could let us know what kind of innovations ha- are happening over there that, that uh, might be enlightening to our listeners. Sure thing. And but part of the reason I'm over here, and this is pretty recent because the book is just coming out, is um. I want to get a deeper understanding of all of the social and cultural factors that go into it. Because what Portugal did in a nutshell was it decriminalized use for personal possession or decriminalized mm-hmm. possession for personal use. For personal use. Yeah. Across the board. Uh, you can't drive a speedboat full of heroin up to the docks. That's not It's not legalization across the board. Uh, right, right. But... Um, it's it's decriminalized for personal use, meaning that you can't even catch a criminal charge for drug possession okay. if somebody is even disruptive to the point of, say, acting out in a park or 
being dangerous, they, uh, you know, assuming there's no actual assault, they get brought before an administrative body. It's not a criminal body, but they they get essentially uh, uh, encouraged to go to treatment and to access services. So Mm -hmm. this is a really innovative and interesting model. And ever since it was instituted about 20 years ago, people across the ideological spectrum have loved to sort of trot it out as an example (laughs) of their own favorite policies. Uh So people saying, you know, decriminalize drugs and everything will be peachy. And then uh, some people say, well, what happened in Portugal would never work in the United States because Portugal is a small country and relatively socially conservative in Southern Europe with Catholicism and has uh, certain other social policies that the U.S. doesn't have. So it's complicated. And I don't think you can understand the Portuguese drug policy unless you really understand the way Portugal has operated, that it was a, it was a, essentially a dictatorship until the seventies. And then it was mm-hmm. one of the most socialist states in all yeah. of Europe. It's always been quite poor, but there's been a strong commitment to community and solidarity. So, you know, all those things go in. It's not just like a flipping a switch. It's not like you just make like a little technocratic tweak and then everything is, right, 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 is right, good. Right, 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 right. What drove them uh, as best you understand what drove them to make the change and what resulted from the change How, uh, can you give us some of that oh sure yeah the, the upshot is there's a massive overdose crisis and massive uh-huh. drug problems and numbers went down but that's yeah. the thing the policy researchers debate is and this is the thing that i try to piece out in the book too and it's such a challenge in all policy and all history is how do you how do you wrap your arms around causation? How can you say yeah. what caused what? Just like what we were talking about with the first American opioid epidemic in the 1860s, right. 70s, 80s. Is it from this? Is it from that? So again, some people might say, oh, Portugal's improvements are due to decriminalization and the associated efforts. Other people on the other side might say, well, you know, it was already on a good track beforehand. Yeah. Um, yeah, you could also yeah. make an analogy to prohibition in the United States, alcohol prohibition. Sure. I wondered about that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So during Prohibition, alcohol use actually increased. Is that true? Well, yeah. no, it decreased. But the debate oh. is, uh, did it require legal prohibition? Did it actually require ah. legal prohibition? Because use was already declining beforehand. And we actually uh. have an even better example in the first wave of temperance activism that most people miss. This is sort of like the first Arachnopia epidemic. There was a full alcohol temperance movement in the 1820s, the 1830s, 1840s. And yeah. oh. by the numbers back then, alcohol use dropped even more than oh. alcohol use numbers dropped in the 1920s. And that was without any legal prohibitions against uh-huh. alcohol back in that earlier uh-huh. first wave in the 1820s. I mean, there might've been a few local ones here and there, but it was really about changing hearts and minds. So yeah. It was around the time of the Second Great Awakening, so it was a big evangelical thing. Right, okay. Exactly right. I have heard that, uh, I don't know about drug use, but I've heard that alcohol use has markedly increased during the pandemic, Mm -hmm. uh, at least in the U.S. I have no idea what relevance that is, but I just thought I'd bring it up. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, it goes to show that uh, patterns of use are complex and multi-causal. Yeah. One of the lessons from the book was uh, we've had drug epidemics over and over now, and we're living through one right now, not Mm -hmm. just opiates, but also, as you say, alcohol use is going up. And many people would have said our use was actually quite high before the pandemic. Uh, Yeah. And usually people like to reach for one single simple cause. They want one villain. And there are villains. You know, we have the... We have the Purdue Pharma case in the opioid epidemic. Yeah. They certainly caused massive harm, but it yeah. would be misleading to say that they were the the sole cause, that there were no other causes and conditions yes. wrapped up in uh-huh. what's going on. Well, friends, David and I are pleased to welcome to the podcast a new sponsor, Soberlink. And we're positive that you're going to love this tool for managing your alcohol recovery. In early sobriety, we often focus on what we're losing instead of what we're gaining. Soberlink, you're gaining increased accountability, a deterrent against drinking, and a tool to help you stay connected with people who care. Uh, Here's what it is. It's a really high-tech breathalyzer device with facial recognition. It allows you to share your sobriety in real time with loved ones. 
In case there's ever a slip, your treatment professional or anyone else you've chosen to be in your recovery circle will know immediately. Uh, more important than the technology is the brand. It is part of Soberlink's mission to break the stigma that surrounds addiction, which is why they partner with Positive Sobriety Podcast and many others in the recovery community. It's also why they specifically focus on using alcohol monitoring as a recovery tool, not for criminal or recreational purposes. There, any, there isn't anything like it on the market. Well, together we've developed a guide called Tips for Keeping a Positive Outlook on Sobriety. And you can download it at www.soberlink.com PSP. That PSP is for Positive Sobriety Podcast. On that page, you'll also find a form to request $50 off your purchase when you're ready to try Soberlink. Uh, why do you think, Dr. Fisher, that our uh, culture, like specifically Americans, um, are consuming so much more alcohol than they have in the past? Or is that true? Well, yeah, let's drill down into that because I, uh, that's one of the ways I frame the book is, is trying to understand these epidemics because in the epidemics through, over time, we see our attitudes about addiction and we see our relationship to mm-hmm. substances and our relationship to suffering. Uh, and traditionally, and this holds true for alcohol today, uh, substance problems arise at the intersection of several causes. Some of the biggest ones are a new availability of the drug, which is not the case mm-hmm. with alcohol today, but was the mm-hmm. case, say, in the gin craze when people developed new methods of distillation that allowed more people to access very strong spirits. Uh, another problem is social wounding, or the uh, also known as deaths of despair, when mm-hmm. there's deeper problems in society, uh, inequality, malaise, alienation, yeah. lack of access to meaningful work and meaning and purpose in life, loneliness, yeah. et cetera. But then another really important um, factor that's appeared over and over again over history is what I call addiction supply industries. And those are industries that play a powerful hand in promoting products that by their very nature have a strong hold over us. That was also a big factor in the gin craze. It was it was the rise of industrialized uh, distillation, and the powerful and rich distillers paid off people like Jonathan Swift uh, to write pamphlets saying, "Hey, the problem's not in the substance. Don't get don't get distracted by the alcohol. The problem oh. is there are certain bad people who use who use the drug in the wrong way." Wow! Uh-huh. Wow! Ah. <laughs> uh. Yeah, there is a, there's an awful lot of money that changes hands in the promotion. Let's say just uh, alcohol these days. Um, and there's an awful lot of innovation that's going on in alcohol right now. Mm-hmm. The, 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 yeah, you've just look down the aisles. Uh, yeah, different ways to hook. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, you mentioned stigma. Uh, very early in our conversation. Where do you see uh, the stigmatization? I, 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 I caught, I, I, there is definitely a connection with racism, but I, I think there's stigma even um, you know, among individual uh, racial groups toward the addicts. Uh, f- where do you see that um, driving addiction or inhibiting recovery? You know, do you see any changes, any hopeful <laughs> uh, uh, trend? Yeah, it's such an important topic because I think it's an obstacle for so many people, the mm-hmm. stigma and the internalized shame and the shame that people might feel yeah. uh, that inhibits their work for growth or recovery or efforts to yeah. get help and treatment. Or just help through mutual help or what other other whatever other methods people pursue, yeah. uh, and stigma, like you say, has definitely long been a part of the experience of addiction. Just leaving mm-hmm. aside the ways that addiction has been used as a weapon and other forms of oppression. That uh, mm-hmm. um, the word "junkie," for example, comes from "junk man," when people with opiate addiction in the 1920s were sort of relegated to digging through trash heaps outside of cities to try to find yeah. scrap to uh-huh. sell oh. for heroin or morphine or what have you. Uh, yeah. So 
I, I think that combating wow. stigma is one of the most important things that we need to do as a society to overcome addiction. There's a oh, lot that fantastic. we could do to yeah. save lives medically. I really believe in the power of medicine and research, and there's a lot more we could be doing to save lives. And we need a fundamental change in consciousness in the way yeah. we recognize and take care of people with addiction to mm-hmm. not other people to... Uh, to really look at people with addiction with care and compassion, because really in the end, I don't think addiction is some uh, awful segregated uh, separate experience. It's something that's part of us. It's part of the whole human condition. And in a way addiction exists in all of us. Uh Yes. Yes. Dr. Fisher, every week in the, in the work that I do with recovering folks, I have to help somebody address whether or not to go to treatment or, how to get into treatment and the and the belief across the board is you know you need to go away for 30 days isolate yourself you know go to um you know 12 step camp more or less somewhere um maybe get an hour of therapy a week at at the treatment center and then come home and play nicely with the rest of us and mm-hmm. um i obviously you know that isn't working so well. Um, the numbers don't seem to indicate that they, that that method is always great, but what, and, and there's a stigma about, uh, Mm. going and that's always the big hurdle. I mean, besides the fact that I'm not always sure I'm, uh, that that's exactly the right thing for every person that comes in and thinks they need to go to treatment, but, but also convincing them that, you know, they can, uh, live and function without having to wear that on their forehead um, because they're so afraid somebody's going to find out that they've been to rehab or wherever. Um, can you talk a little bit about our relationship to the treatment that we offer, both the efficacy of that treatment and also the, you know, how do we as a culture learn to think differently about people who have sought help in this area? Yeah, it's such an important question because, you know, listen, I resisted going to rehab myself Uh because of denial. Uh And I'm really Mm -hmm. glad I went. And in many Mm -hmm. ways, it saved my life. And there were big problems with it. There were big Mm -hmm. problems with the treatment system. And there were big problems with my individual rehab. And Mm -hmm. I I think both of those things can be true. Uh (laughs) It's a reasonable thing for a lot of people to do to get help. And it's occurring against a backdrop of a lot of problems with the treatment system. So I do think that some people resist going to treatment because of denial. Excuse me. Some people do resist going to treatment because of denial. And some people resist going to treatment because they've had bad experiences with treatment or because they know people who have had bad experiences with treatment or because uh, they have the sense that maybe this is not right for me. And I think that we need to offer more pathways to recovery and more opportunities for people to explore different ways of getting better from substance use problems Mm -hmm. uh, while also still supporting and encouraging hope along the way. You know, that we spend so much time in this country and there are very deep historical legacies for why this is, uh, but we spend so much time in this country on a sort of single track, one size fits all treatment system. And I'm very lucky that it it basically worked for me. I'm very Mm -hmm. lucky for that. But I've seen so many people go through those systems for whom it hasn't worked. And I think we're not doing as good a job of engaging them along the path uh, and giving them the opportunity to access their own motivation. And then maybe they go to rehab later once they give a shot at moderation and it doesn't work for them. Or maybe it does work for them and they don't have a real hardcore addiction. Who knows? Uh Uh, But I think most people have the sense that it's a little limited nowadays. Uh-huh. And yeah. how do we help yeah. the culture uh, think, begin to think differently about what that what that means for people? Um, you know, if I if I am uh, looking into uh, some position or something, and I have to mention that I I was in treatment for a period of time, or that I have experienced uh, treatment for a specific uh, substance or behavior. Um, what, what shifts in a culture's mindset that says, okay, well, you know, uh, we can, we can look at that with a little bit more empathy, a little bit more, uh, compassion, or are we all just going to be hard ass about it for the rest of time? You know, 
I identify deeply with that. You know, I, I, whenever I get hospital privileges or apply for a new medical job, I, I have to check a little box now. Mm-hmm. And that that's a big problem across the states that um, in some cases, licensing bodies or other organizations are just not following the law when it comes to uh, discrimination against people yeah. with a uh, mental disorder history, including a substance use disorder problem. So we do have laws and regulations about, for example, um, the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, says you're supposed to be asking about present function, not have you ever had a da 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 da. That yeah, might have yeah. a true. I'm not trying to give people legal advice, by the way. Like uh-huh. that might have a true in all cases, uh-huh. but as a general matter, like that's one of the issues that's come up with licensing boards around medicine, but also law when uh-huh. people are trying to pass the bar. Uh-huh. Um, so you know, one one good thing is to treat people with compassion and follow the law. But I think <laughs> you're right that we do ultimately need to change hearts and minds about what it means to be someone with addiction, to be struggling with addiction, to be living with a substance use problem. And I think that we've established too much of an us versus them dichotomy Uh where people with addiction are seen as these injured, broken, dangerous folks. And I'm sure you know, and I'm sure most of your listeners know, it's just not true, that there's tremendous hope, that there's tremendous possibility for recovery, that um Looking over the long term at the population level, people with substance use problems really recover at remarkable rates and do extremely well. And in some cases, recovery is a route to really beautiful pathways to flourishing that they never would have imagined had they not gotten gotten that opportunity. I think the one toxic side effect of that understanding that uh, the addict is somehow, uh, you know, to, to place the blame for the addiction squarely on the addict. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to excuse entirely or ignore entirely the fact that there is an addictive substance or a behavior with addictive qualities. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, other people cruising toward addiction while engaging with that addictive substance or activity can think that because they are not an addict, because they somehow haven't met the cultural definition of addict, that they're not in trouble, they're not in that... and and I think that's perhaps, and now I'm preaching. I want to ask a question. Uh, do you see, what do you see, what are the distinctions uh, between a substance use disorder and a process addiction? Uh, first mm-hmm. of all, I guess I'm assuming that, that you accept that process addictions are real. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, in fact, the, the very first uh, case description of addiction in history that I found in my book is mm-hmm. somebody with gambling addiction from the Indian Rig Veda from a thousand years BC. Really? And wow. it's a it's a beautiful point. And this is an ancient, ancient Sanskrit scriptures where mm-hmm. a poem describes somebody who is playing at dice, but it wasn't mm-hmm. even dice back then. It was basically throwing stones into a pit. And yeah. how the dice themselves acquired their own agency and took the person over and this, oh, wow. this gambler lost his wife, his beloved wife who was taking mm-hmm. such good care of him and he lost his family and he lost all that held de- that he held dear. Uh, and we see so many examples of that throughout the historical mm-hmm. record of people who unquestionably suffered from addiction, yeah. I feel. And in fact, the history was very useful to me in this way because in the early days of, say, for example, the word addiction, mm-hmm. roughly 500 years ago when it first entered the English language, it didn't mean getting taken over by some substance. It meant something much broader and much deeper. It meant uh, a strong devotion by which you lost some of your will. So uh-huh. you could be, it was a verb. It wasn't a noun. It wasn't something that happened to you. It was something mm. you did. And it could mm. be positive or negative too. Somebody, You could addict yourself to study or to prayer, but you could also mm-hmm. addict yourself to the wrong sorts of things. Uh, and wow. there wasn't any such distinction between substances or other powerful yeah. experiences. And I think, I think we've lost some of that because of this narrow, narrow focus on the effects of the drug to the exclusion of the personal, human, social, cultural elements too. Yeah, yeah. 
Now, you've uh, done neurological study. Uh, there's been an explosion of research and, I, I think, insight into the human brain in the last 20 years. Has And so nowadays, uh, conversations around addiction drift uh, inevitably toward the brain. Are there valuable insights, key insights that we've gained through recent Neolog- uh, uh, neurological uh, research that shed more light on addiction, or has it muddied the waters? Well, there have absolutely been benefits, and in a way, we need more research and more study because we never know where basic research is going to lead us. Right. And at the same time, I think there's been a dangerous narrative around the brain that mm-hmm. sometimes has been exploited for profit by people who yeah. are looking to sell addiction treatment services or otherwise, that in in the words of some, addiction is a, is a brain disease that is yeah. best understood at the level of the brain to the exclusion of all those factors we were just talking about in a way that implies that the person has no agency, has no choice, has yeah. no ability to change on their own. And those are not the fault of the researchers, those misperceptions and those miscommunications. I think the researchers, if you actually look at how they've communicated over time, have done a pretty good job of it. There's some yeah, exceptions. Yeah. But uh, sometimes when these research ideas get out into the popular culture, mm-hmm. they get narrowed down into a sort of hijacking yeah. narrative, like the drug is an evil demon that takes you over and saps away all, all will yeah. or control. And, uh, you know, we see examples of, for um, you know, for example, through the 90s, through the 2000s, even to today, uh, popular science communication is repeating ideas about dopamine that were disproven in like the early yeah. 1990s, where it's a, it's a yeah. pleasure molecule or, you know, the mm-hmm. social yeah, media yeah, makes yeah. you happy because it lights up your pleasure center. And it's just not true. It's not how dopamine works. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. the reason those sorts of reductionistic stories persist over time is because they have a function, because they're useful yeah. for some. They're useful in the war on drugs or they're useful for profit or they're useful for some other kind of oversimplification. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You alluded earlier to uh, Dr. Fisher about uh, our response to suffering and our response to suffering people um, that, you know, that resonated with me because I feel like everybody is a story waiting to be heard, not to be cliche about that. But, um, but I think that a lot of times we try to, to treat people who are suffering without really hearing their story. Um, how can, uh, gosh, I mean, and there's, I, I know there's not a blanket answer to this, but how can um, our culture grow it, in empathy in a way? How can we individually in, encourage our culture to grow with empathy to hear the story that wants to be told and not just look at this person in a very um, stigmatized, labeled, you know, um, cause if I say, well, he's, he's just an addict or she's just a junkie, I've written off, you know, mm-hmm. an entire, uh, narrative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more. I think one of the lessons from addiction specifically, and from the history of addiction is that this notion that I mentioned before that addiction exists in all of us, that addiction is not some sort of extreme condition that you catch, but mm-hmm. In fact, the things that go awry in addiction are present in all human beings, Mm -hmm. that everyone struggles with choice. Everyone Mm -hmm. struggles with self-control. And maybe addiction is where the extreme cases of addiction that require treatment or really destroy lives, like that is something special. I feel like I qualify for that. That is Mm -hmm. deserving of its own care and consideration. But it's not fundamentally distinct from the rest of human suffering. It's just a matter of degree. It's not a matter of kind. Uh, and I think if we recognize that and got away from the sort of binaries here, mm-hmm. you know, like nowadays yeah. it's so common to call to talk about addiction in terms of like choice versus compulsion. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Either you're totally free on one end or mm-hmm. you're completely hijacked on the other. It totally um, obscures all of the gray area in between that so many of us struggle mm-hmm. with. And in fact, that ancient thinkers thought like Aristotle, St. Augustine, like a lot of people I profile in the book were really curious about about that, the way that choice might still kind of sort of be there, but is disordered in a way. And 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a route to compassion. I think that's a route to recognizing how we're all connected in this way. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I cannot wait to read this book. Uh, the title is The Urge, Our History of Addiction uh, by uh, Dr. Carl Eric Fisher. Is there uh, an audible audio version available or in the works? Do you know? Or is it just yeah. print? No, there is. It's out. It's out right now. And probably oh, the, okay. the best way to learn about all that stuff is to go to my website. If you want me okay. to. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Please do. Yeah, plug, yeah, plug yeah. away. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's my name. It's carlericfisher.com. And okay. there's a little Eric, more information about the book. And Eric with I also, a K, I got, by the way. That's right. Yeah. 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 Carl okay. with a C, Eric with a K, uh-huh. Fisher okay. without. You know, it would be nicer if I had less ambiguous spelling, but them's the breaks. Yeah. That's how uh, <laughs> But I also, I have a podcast of my own on the website. So if you're, you know, if you enjoy deep dives into addiction and policy and nice. philosophy and literature, it, that's, that's a good place to check it out too. That would be All great. Right. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for taking time. Uh, enjoy Portugal. Uh, how, how long do you plan to be there or have you moved there? Well, yeah, the, the initial plan was just a year back and forth mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I don't know, it's pretty attractive. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, listeners stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment on the positive sobriety podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Um, Nate, that is, uh, that, that is an interesting guest. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Fisher, uh, I I, I, we could have unpacked a whole lot of his uh, research yeah. and his history. And uh, man, for- I want to interview him. I want to interview him again after I've read the book. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In a way, I kind of sympathize with him because I've, been interviewed on podcasts or on television or, you know, sure. people who clearly have never read the book that they're interviewing <laughs> me about. Right. You're right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah. Uh, so I think I probably certainly could have gone deeper with him, would have had a far more, uh, uh, far more questions if I'd actually uh, read the book beforehand. Uh, that's next order business for me. I'll probably download uh, the audio book. That's easiest for me right now because I got mm-hmm. a lot of traveling to do. Yeah. Um, well, I love, uh, I love that that's already available. So, you know, I'm, I'm like you, I'm in my car a lot and, yeah. uh, audible books really, uh, are helpful to me. So yeah, I'm glad yeah. that the, that's a, an option for him. You know, one of the things he said that I really am glad that he made the point about was, um, understanding addiction in the context of understanding suffering. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that, that, um, you know, we go over that so much, it seems like, but, uh, that just comes back again to, um, the way we're going to change our approach to addiction is the way we change our way of viewing our fellow suffering human beings. Yes. You know, yeah. um, right. the culture, uh, you know, I don't know if we're getting more or less empathetic and that's a bigger question than we've got time to talk about, but, yeah. um, it just seems like that uh, vilifying folks that are suffering for a number of reasons um, is not making anybody better. Right, right, right. Yeah, I've got to believe, I'm, and I do know that, you know, growth and recovery, personal recovery is tied very closely to my willingness and my growing ability to accept the fact that life is difficult uh-huh. and to, uh, you know, to, uh, First of all, to accept the reality of suffering, mm-hmm. but then also uh, not to insist on suffering alone. Right. Right. And then our, our health, the, the health of our communities, whether it's a community of faith or whether it's a social community, is our, abil- our willingness to share the sufferings of others and mm-hmm. be empathetic. And the more I'm able to do that, the less I need to distract myself from that pain, run from that pain, medicate that pain Mm -hmm. with something that's only in the long run going to create even more pain. Yeah. 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 Well, his book, um, you know, The Urge, 
our history of addiction is going to be a really interesting read for anybody that wants to explore the cultural, uh, historical uh, relationship we have uh, to how we got here, I think, mm-hmm. with yeah, respect yeah. to how we understand uh, this problem. So I'm very grateful to have him with us. Okay. Well, uh, in addition to our newest sponsor, correct, Soberlink. Yes, uh, we have we have our legacy sponsor, the the brave outfit that joined us first. Before we go, why don't you remind our listeners about Get Better Help? Absolutely, uh, I am real happy to talk about BetterHelp.com. That's H-E-L-P, BetterHelp dot com, and this is where you get the opportunity to subscribe to uh, therapy at home in the privacy of your own surroundings where you get your own therapist, your own trained licensed therapist, where you can begin to explore all the things you would in a conventional uh, counseling session. Um, This is uh, a group of people who uh, are there for you. It's um, something that you can have consistently with the same person. And and if you're not resonating, you can always change and request a different different therapist. But this is depression, anxiety, um, LGBTQ issues, um, process addictions, substance use. This is where you can assess and begin to explore all these things with a licensed trained professional. And if you go on and log in with uh, betterhelp.com slash positive sobriety, you will get a discount on your earliest subscription. And that uh, will also let us know that our resources are helping you find the help you need. So uh, check out betterhelp.com slash positive sobriety. All right. And a reminder before we go that we love all input from listeners. You can always reach us directly by email at positive sobriety podcast at gmail.com. Well, that does it for this week, David. Until next time, I'm Nate. And I'm David. And we are your pals on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer Rex Schnelli, music by Rex Schnelli, theme music by Matt Ulrich. Uh, Hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett, uh, wardrobe by (laughs) Kathy Gifford. 